It is the common people's duty to police the police. Stephen McGee. Bending, Not Breaking. Season 4, Episode 8. When Extremes Meet. to another episode of Bending Not Breaking. I'm Sunshine Mayfield. And this is Ben Pruitt. And we have more Cora to get into today. So much more Cora. Uh, and this is an episode that's, uh, it's, what's the word? I know we say this a bunch. Challenging? Um, it's got a lot. <laughs> yeah. This is, <laughs> a, this is a hard episode, y'all. And this, this was one, to be honest, uh, Ben and I watched this episode. We even started recording under a different lens for this episode. And as we got the conversation going, said, this isn't, this doesn't feel right. This doesn't yeah. feel good we don't feel like we have the ability to really speak to this episode with the importance that it needs to be spoken to with and so because of that we have invited a guest an incredible guest onto our show i love guests um, we, we always love guests um we have a, a professor of sociology and coordinator of the policing and social justice project at brooklyn college he has writings that are uh, about policing that have appeared in New York Times, New York Daily Times, USA Today, and Vice News, and has the book The End of Policing. And so we have with us today Alex S. Vitali onto the show. Alex, welcome. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Sunshine. Absolutely. Again, so excited for you to be here today because I think you bring just a wealth of knowledge. Ben and I both have read The End of Policing. We both really enjoyed it. We highly recommend for anyone else to go pick it up and, 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 to, and to read it as well. There's a, so much information in there, and it feels like it really matches well with this specific episode. I feel like we're going to have a lot to talk about. Absolutely. So... I'm curious. So we kind of, uh, when we asked you to join us, uh, can you just give our audience a picture of like, what is your avatar experience? Like what, what tell us about, tell our, our listeners understand what your affiliation with avatar is, if any. So, uh, my, my first awareness of it was that I was thinking, I think I was looking for the movie with the blue people at one point. Yep, <laughs> and I yep, was yep, like, that's common. <laughs> and I was like, well, what is this? And then actually I was looking through things for my nine-year-old to watch and several people, you know, recommended it. So I took a brief look at it and then it turned out that she had already watched a whole bunch of it, uh, herself. And so when you all reached out to me, I, I took another brief look at that, but then then watched the, the whole first season of The Legend of Korra. Awesome. So you have the full foundation of what led up to this episode, which is going to be really helpful in terms of placing context and understanding the kind of power dynamics that are happening. So this is really exciting. And, and I should say also that, you know, I kind of came up with some of the, the Japanese anime especially, you know, some of the feature films. And so some of the, even though this isn't technically a Japanese production, you know, the, some of the themes and the, the aesthetic styles were certainly quite familiar to me. Awesome. Well, great. That's so cool. So one of the things that we do, we have a, a tradition on the podcast where we kind of bring it in with uh, a recap and so we're going to make Sunshine do it today. Uh, and so he has 30 seconds to put everything that happened into this episode into 30 seconds. Uh, Sunshine, are you ready? No, but I'll do it anyways. All right, good. On <laughs> your mark, get set, go. 
Team Avatar goes to the Air Temple Island and is greeted by the kids. Iki runs out and, and Korra, uh, she rats her out for liking uh, Mako. And then Asami settles in and Tenzin and Korra, uh, they need to go see the new chief get sworn in. And Tarlock oversees the police force now, and that's scary. And then Tarlock wields, I like to say he wields his words like a knife and, and, and really gets at Korra and Tenzin, so that's a thing. Team Avatar plans to save the city together then without the help of the police. And Asami gets into car chases with chi blockers. Yay! Team Avatar catches the equalist and Tarlock isn't happy. And then they go help out a bunch of protesters and the police then arrest a bunch of people and even Tenzin can't help them out that was remarkable there's so much that happens and there's wow i'm impressed i like to cover the big the big buckets yeah i always get stuck on the, the little details the little details <laughs> there's so much you want to like go in and art but that's what the show's for we talk we talk we talk about the little details yeah okay so uh we have a lens today we we are like Talk about putting it our the like hammer on the nail. We are talking about policing as our lens, and so we wanted to make sure that we we had you, Professor Vitali, to to kind of help us grapple with the the struggle that we had watching this episode. And so I, I'm curious where to start. Like, uh, well, I think one of the things I w- I, w- I want to jump into real fast is okay. this idea that people don't love Korra or one of the big critiques of Korra is uh, it's too political, right? Like that fantasy shouldn't be about politics, but the reality is every, er, almost every form of fantasy is about writing about the experience of oppressed versus oppression and how we navigate that. And so to look at fiction and media in a way that we look at the real world is really important. And I feel like there's no way to, to write fantasy without having those aspects and have it turn out to be one that is meaningful. And so I wonder what thoughts kind of look at that. And then, you know, how do you look at that critique, uh, Alex, if you, if you want to go into that? How do you see a critique like that and kind of discuss media in that sense, especially through a lens of policing? Well, you know, I I grew up with with Silver Age Marvel comics, and for me, what was most interesting was when the lives and mission of the superheroes were embedded in some kind of political context. And you know, you, we always see this also with with the with the Batman series, right? Is there's always the chief and the mayor, and there are these political elements to what they're doing, and I think. It's in that context that the actions of the protagonists are given so much more meaning and significance. Because if we're, if we're trying to sort of explore core ethical moral questions through these stories, then we have to place those stories in a way that matters, you know? And, and if it's mm-hmm. just abstraction or just about being nice to each other interpersonally, we miss these larger, more difficult ethical questions. And there's a lot of ethical ambiguity going on. Like, like I have a certain sympathy for the equalists. Yeah. You know, I wanted to know more about are the benders, in fact, you know, creating a two-tiered society, uh, uh, which it would be profoundly problematic. This is not really made clear, like what these these alleged harmful behaviors of the of the benders are, except a little bit this reference to kind of organized criminality. Uh, mm-hmm. But but it's exactly those questions 
about the ethical position of benders that that to me makes the story more interesting yeah and just for your uh perusal of the avatar universe there's a, a nice setup of Korra in um comic books that kind of uh lead people into this world and kind of sets up the equalist movement so if you're curious about further information and if you're our listeners are curious there's a lot of um coverage there in the comics um fyi but i i think what i was thinking about and we've talked about this before on our our core of coverage so far but i think it's worth covering again is talking about like how bending is not only a form of privilege but it's also like can in the way that it is used and can be used a form of like weaponry and you like one of the things you talk about is how police are armed and that is in the way that they're armed and the funding that goes towards that arming is problematic right <laughs> to say the least <laughs> it's an understatement but can you like help us under grapple with this concept that the people in power these police are metal benders which is a like a skill that only this like few group of people have can you just kind of elaborate and help us grapple with that as a concept Sure. Well, f first I want to say, you know, we can think about also Cora and her team as police operating at a kind of higher level, what we call high policing, which is like managing larger political questions through the policing apparatus. And then you have the uniformed metal benders as what, what we conventionally think of as police. And in either case, it's important that we understand what differentiates police from all other parts of government and the state is their authorization and capacity to use violence, to use force, you know, uh, to, to be able to make arrests and when necessary, use even deadly force. And that capacity should always be a matter of deep concern we can just look around the world and see how that police power is abused by states. The, the police are used as a political weapon to, to suppress uh, popular movements, to, to stage coups, to keep dictators in office. And that's just a risk that comes with the empowerment of a large armed force trained in the use of coordinated violence. And we can see that emerge as a, as a potential problem in the episode, both at the high and the low level, right? So we see the abusive use of the uniform police in suppressing this, these demonstrations by regular citizens. And the, the uh, Tarlock, you know, compels them to engage in what we would view as kind of unlawful uh, arrests, human rights abuses, etc. Yeah. But but also, you know, even for Cora, she is operating outside any system of accountability. Yeah. And 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 her youthfulness, her impetuousness leads her to make mistakes. And the accountability is kind of limited to her relationship with her mentor. But there's no sense in which there's pol there's broader political accountability, and I think that's what helps feed the equalist movement at this time. Yeah. Oh, there's just there's so much. This is a lot. 
Yeah, because I think I think the question that that leads into is we see these we see this moment of protesters. We see them trying to to use what they have to bring power back to themselves. What do we do? What do we do when we feel like the police aren't there for us? What do we do when we feel like even the people who are supposed to be watching the police and holding them accountable aren't doing their their job? How do non-benders in this world respond uh, in a way that helps alleviate that those issues? Um, which I know is probably an incredibly loaded and impossible <laughs> question to answer. Um, well, let's, I, let's I, I, tease I it apart a little bit. Yeah, let's tease it apart a little bit. I mean, one of the things I really liked about the episode was that it did not focus on the police as somehow this independent self-contained entity and sort of, you know, imagine that the abuse of those citizen protesters was because of some problem within policing. Instead, it made very clear that this was all political. That, that Tarlock is engaged in a program of building his own political power and he understands very clearly that control of the police is essential for this. And so you have these meetings of the city council where uh, there is this capitulation to Tarlock. And I think this is evoking a kind of way in which uh, weak political institutions will sometimes turn themselves over to dictators. Yeah. That that they lack a clear analysis about what's going on and about what a just outcome would be. And instead of demanding a political process that attempts to resolve the tension between benders and non-benders in some just manner, they say, well, we don't know what to do, so we're going to turn this over to the forces of order. And yeah. Tarlock says, I'm the guy who can mobilize the forces of order to suppress the other side rather than actually try to come to some political agreement with them. Yeah, so I have a, I have a question here. So this, this idea of they are, like, next episode, the next couple episodes, like, about to have a coup right where uh spoiler alert um but like there's about there's about to be a coup of this government that exists in republic city and like so when Saikon, the the second chief of police when he takes this role like my question was like how did this happen how what are the the political systems in place that allowed this appointment to take place and so my, and then the follow-up is, what are the checks and balances that need to go into place in order to pre prevent something like this from happening again? Um, what, what are, you, are those the right questions well, to see, be asking? Well, the like, problem, <laughs> yeah, the problem here is that we don't really know, at least from what I've seen, we don't really know what this political system is. What's the basis of these positions as city councilors? So we, 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 we assume that Tenzin is a city councilor by, by virtue somehow of his special abilities and his role as a master, but is he elected? 
are the other members elected? Do they represent geographic constituencies? You know, what do these elections look like? Uh, how legitimate is this system? What what kind of governmental resources are they able to mobilize? All, all that's kind of left on the sideline, and what what we're given is an image of an essentially very weak council uh, of empty suits. And yeah. in, a, in a time of crisis, they turn to the authoritarian to bail them out with the one voice of Tenzin saying, wait a second, we should have broader concerns here. Yeah. So the importance of putting people into political station that are equipped and able to um, make decisions in crisis is important is something that I'm I'm hearing right now. Yeah, it's not enough to just say, well, let's let the police handle it. You know, like, yeah. what are these grievances from the non-airbenders, and what are the potential political processes that could be undertaken to try to, you know, address these concerns in a meaningful way rather than suppressing them? Well, and, that's, and I feel like this is tough because there's there's a lot of infrastructure that comes into this process that maybe the average non-bending citizen doesn't feel like they have a lot of say in or get a lot of say in and how to shape that infrastructure. And so I guess my question is how, do, how does a non-bender in this situation, or as it parallels to our universe, um, how does one act in a way to, to work towards that, I guess would be the, the next question. I mean, you know, the role of the avatar is supposed to be to create balance, mm -hmm. to, to produce some kind of harmony among competing interests. And there is a way in which, you know, the arrival of the new avatar in the city and being confronted immediately with, like, homelessness, organized crime, yep. uh, says, oh, look, this is a system that's out of balance. Some, something seems to be amiss here. And so, in a way, that's a classic kind of uh, structure for saying, yes, we need the new avatar to step up to resolve these contradictions. Mm. My concern is that the, the mechanism for resolving those, those contradictions is combat. Yeah rather than a political process of trying to figure out what's what's driving these contradictions. So, I mean, obviously it's more exciting to watch a morality tale resolve through combat than through a city council hearing. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I don't so, know. I would really love the Avatar universe version of like I would the, like the, the what's the West Wing version that we could put into exactly, the Avatar world, exactly. right? Because um, that would be fun. I would enjoy that. I would watch it. I would. Watch we'll it let Avatar sure. Studios know. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, maybe um, a I, more maybe a more mature Avatar uh, would have those skills to yeah, try to use their status uh, above the fray, so to speak to bring people to the table in a way. Uh, but but this is clearly not a mature avatar, does not even have all of her powers uh, yeah. available, 
And so it makes sense in a way that the, the contradiction would be managed in a slightly more ham-fisted way with a lot of collateral consequences, right? A lot of collateral I, damage I as a worth, result. I think it's worth also worth also lifting up. Sorry, <laughs> words are hard. Um, <laughs> the, the, I think the, the history and context of this um, is that this is like second generation of this city where this has only been around for, you know, you know, 50, some 50 years. to 80 years at max, right? It's not like, so um, I, I think that this is what it theoretically illustrating, like we're, we're still working towards quote civilization in terms of technology, obviously, but also in terms of like, this is a new process for them creating, like running a city is something that is new because the historical background is that there are the, the four nations and this is the first city that has united all four of those and it's only been around for 60 years or however long it has been so i think when i consider what that looks like i, I think about for us right we are living in a country that has a longer history than that and uh all of the systems that are in place are much more ingrained into like our cultural understanding of how it works for better or for worse probably for worse but for i i think that when i think about that it seems like this when we don't have the tools of experience and history to teach us and guide us it seems as though we're more likely to use combat as a as a tool when we don't have that history of um negotiation that this crew doesn't really have well i wish um, i wish length of time was sufficient right i mean we the u.s has been around for about 250 years and we seem to be resolving a lot of our conflicts through combat yeah right whether it's the the capital yeah, that's a great point. attacks whether it's the the police violence against black lives matter demonstrators we we have a lot to learn on this front still still today well and that's i kind of want to jump into the protest section of this episode because it i think that i felt a lot of parallels in watching this episode and the events of this past summer and in in past few years um, can we talk a little bit about like the tactics, the language that Tarlock uses, the um, the curfews, the shutting down the power, and, and how all of that mirrors, and why are those decisions made for that purpose, and what is what is the end goal of, of those decisions when made by groups who are in power? You know, they say that uh, the strength of a democracy is not evident during normal times. A strength of a democracy becomes clear in times of crisis. Mm. And so we had a crisis this past summer with the protests around police abuse. And in, you know, in broad swaths of the country, we saw a breakdown of basic democratic rights. We saw curfews. We saw restrictions on the right to protest. We saw very high levels of police violence. And so uh, we refer to this sometimes as a state of exception, where the normal rules of democratic process get set aside in a time of crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what we saw in that episode was that uh, Tarlock immediately moves to a state of exception suspends normal rights, 
shuts the city down, uh, and that this is always a sign of a lack of legitimacy and a deep crisis. And, you know, it exposes the limits of the kind of democratic commitments that get embraced and claimed during normal times. And then when push comes to shove, that's when we find out just how deep those commitments really are. And when we see them break down, it, it should raise this question, well, if, if the state is not actually committed to these democratic processes in the tough times, well, what is it that they are really committed to? What is it that seems to be more important? Yeah. And I think what we saw, what was more important was his rise to power and his desire to suppress the, these oppositional movements. I think what makes that hard for me is it, that's not the story he was telling, right? He was utilizing this story of the equalists are bad, therefore I get to make these decisions, right? This is the justification for me doing these things, right? Where we see through, you know, being able to infer, but also like clearly Tarlock is corrupt and we see him confront Cora late, later in the episode. But it's one of those things where most of those non-benders don't see that side of Tarlock. What they see is that he is working to stomp out these equalists, like all of the benders on this side of the, uh, everybody on either side of the field is only seeing this public persona. And so how do you, how do we figure out how to tease out that as a normal citizen, right? How do we learn to identify what are the key things that help us see when rhetoric is being used to obscure the actual goal? Does that make sense as a question? Yeah, yeah, because I think it's it's super important because anytime we see a politician mobilize a state of exception and turn a problem over to policing, we should automatically be looking for the political failure that led to that. Like that is an automatic red flag. When, you know, George Bush says in, after 9-11, it's now a war on terror. Uh -huh. Domestic restrictions, the Constitution are somewhat in abeyance now. We're going to create this Patriot Act, which is clearly inconsistent with core values of American society going back hundreds of years uh, because he actually didn't have a plan for resolving the international problems that he and his father helped create. And so he's going to criminalize it, in this case, turning it over to the military internationally and to the FBI domestically. So his very decision to go down this path should signal to people a lack of legitimacy and a deep crisis. How do you balance that with, I, I feel like I would hear critiques on this idea of like, well, what about governor mass mandates in a time of crisis or in a time of emergency like COVID? And how do you, are those different things? How do you separate those two things if they are? But how does, how does a person discern what is okay for those times of crisis to come into play or what is not okay? Excellent question. So here's the deal. It's one thing for the government to say unambiguously, masks are good, 
They are necessary. You should wear one. It's another thing to say, if you don't comply, we're turning that over to the police to manage. So what, what happened here is, first of all, we did not have unambiguous messaging. The political class gave us very ambiguous messaging and then unleashed policing on people. But instead of unleashing policing, we should think about more legitimate and successful forms of public health messaging. So, so just to give you an example, you know, one of the things we learned during the early days of the HIV AIDS crisis was that having doctors and politicians go on television and wag their fingers at gay men about safe sex practices was not very effective because that community had been historically mistreated by both doctors and politicians. It was only when public health officials were given the ability to go into the community, hire people in the community to work in community spaces as peer educators, that compliance around safe sex practices significantly increased. And the same can be said for public health practices around COVID. Instead of politicians trying to build up their vision of themselves as tough leaders by going on television every night and wagging their finger at people and then sending the cops, why don't we hear the voices of community leaders in a, in a broad array of communities? Here in New York, people speak literally hundreds of languages, many different religions, different cultural outlooks, and not all of them trust the government. Why aren't we having radio programs in these different languages featuring celebrities, community leaders, religious figures, all of which, all delivering a consistent message about how important this is. But see, that would undermine the strong man image of the politician that these yeah. politicians are trying to project. Yeah. So uh, in your book, you focus a lot on this, this concept of like disciplinary policing versus like actually sending people that are designed to solve the problem rather than punish for not complying to the way that we say we should do it. Um, and I, I think it's really fascinating because I'm paraphrasing, obviously you were much more eloquent. Um, but, <laughs> but like, I think one of the things that I, I noticed in this is the way that this scene plays out is just so hard for me to watch because we see this buildup of Tarlock goes into him realizing that Cora can outmaneuver him. So the, and their capacity to like, he's losing power. He's losing this uh, control of the situation. And that's when he goes in and starts going after Team Avatar, right? He realizes that Asami is wearing the glove, goes after her. She's a non-bender present. She's past curfew. And so we start attacking people that clearly aren't part of it, but they fit the bill. And they fit the, the, the idea of who we're going after, right? Based off the criteria that we've set for our, like, ourselves. Yeah, basically. exactly. And so I'm, I'm just... I don't know that I have a good question, but I'm just like this. This scene is 
tragic for me because that's just it feels so real and so um i think you know i think part of what what we have here is this clear separation between policing and justice between political power and justice so so we normally labor under this idea that that police enforce a law made by a political system and all of that is designed to produce justice. But when we look closely at what police really do, it's much more about producing order. And that order can be quite distinct from either the law or any real notion of justice. And so Tarlock wants to gain control of the police because he knows he can then use that tool not to produce justice but to enable his own grab for power. And so once once we kind of peel that veneer back and we see ah policing there's nothing inherently just about police as a tool of the state then it makes clear the potential for these kinds of abusive situations. So, okay, 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 okay. <laughs> like both the sunshine and I stunned, stunned into silence. What are we like, like? What are we? Where do yeah, we go? Like sunshine, I looked at each other. And we were just like, oh god, oh god. What do we say? It's just there's we're just processing, right? This is a there's a lot. So. I think my my follow up is that it is clear based off of plenty of research that punishing people for not complying is not as effective as providing information is not as effective of establishing mutual purpose it's not as effective as bringing in members of the community that are equipped with the knowledge and understanding of the issue at hand and so what we're seeing then contrasted with this is that police are a tool via people in power to implement, to maintain the persona and image of being in control when in fact it is quite literally the opposite. Is, is that a, if I were to like summarize a quick, that short snippet of our conversation, is that how does that sound? What is what's yeah, that's, missing from that? Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. That's pretty good, right? Now, it's that, that notion of order that the police are enforcing, you know, has certain benefits to it. But those benefits don't accrue equally. So, so obviously, we don't want a society where people are running around, you know, bonking each other on the head and taking their stuff and just you know, bedlam. It, it turns out, though, that that's not really what people want to do. And it also turns out that policing is not the only way to produce a sense of social order. Mm. That we can use all kinds of informal means of social control. And that, in fact, most compliance to the rules of civilization are not based on the need for policing. I mean, policing's only been around for a couple hundred years. It's a fairly new idea. Um, people would like to live in stable 
environments in healthy places and free of crime. And the reason most people don't go out and rob banks is not because they're afraid of getting arrested. It's because they don't want to live in a world where people go around robbing banks. That That's yeah. not the kind of world we want to live in. At the, and then just the, the other part of what you said about, about you know, formal social control, we can see this most obviously in things like the war on drugs, right? We, we've had this war on drugs for 40, 50 years. We've put literally millions of human beings into cages, and anyone can get any kind of drugs whenever they want them. You know, I lecture in a lot of high schools and colleges, and I always ask, is there, is there anyone here who doesn't know how to get illegal drugs? And of course, everyone laughs. You know, everyone knows who they would call to get the ball rolling on that. It's not a big mystery. And, and so we have this massive apparatus of suppressing drug use. No lives have been saved. No one's been prevented from getting access to drugs. It, it, there's no justice in it. Why don't we actually try to empower informal mechanisms of saying, well, what is harmful about drug use? Using drugs irresponsibly in ways that harm ourselves or others around us. Okay, like with alcohol. We, we tried criminalizing alcohol. It didn't work. It just made the situation worse. Well, maybe we need to rethink on this whole drug war, and we need to think about how we can unleash uh, forces of informal social control, which are always more effective and don't come with the collateral consequences of mass incarceration and, you know, the erosion yeah. of our basic rights. Yeah. There's, so there's two things that you that bubbled up for me as you were talking there. I, the, the first is this – we talk on this podcast a lot about a hypothesis of generosity, meaning we assume the best, right, of, of people's intentions and their actions. Like they – like people aren't bad people. Sometimes we make bad decisions, and then there – you know, there are always exceptions to that. And I think that if we genuinely go into this method of um, government, assuming that our citizens are doing their best, assuming that our uh, citizens are good at heart and want what's best for their children and that they want to do X, Y, and Z, and, and, that's, and that those things are good, then we're going to treat them differently, right? We aren't going to... Uh, figure out how to punish them and force them into cooperation. Instead, we're going to in provide information. We're going to provide like all of these things that you're talking about. So, in, in the example in your book that I really appreciated was uh, regarding needles for uh, for heroin use, right? Which was there are several programs that have started providing like, hey, if you're going to do it, at least do it using this safe needle with the um, presence of a trained professional, and. The results from that were pretty fascinating, and, and it's just it's it's interesting to me that when we provide people, when we assume the best, all of a sudden people start thriving better than if we aren't assuming the best, right? And so, how do we create a system, and or maybe, maybe not create? How do we enforce and hold accountable a system that helps? the people who are in charge assume the best, I think is my, my question. 
Yeah, how do we how do we create like a culture of care and compassion rather than coercion and control? Precisely. Yeah, yeah. let's do that. <laughs> it's yeah, it's it's not going to be an easy question, right? It's not going to be easy. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think we have to I think this this attitude about sharing is is important and I would I would maybe use language about uh, forgiveness and transformation as well. I mean, without giving too much away, right? We see later that Tarlock, you know, kind of commits an action of extreme uh, contrition later yes. in the series. And we hear more about his story and and humanizes him and and says that you know, he is not this evil person. He is a human being who's made mistakes, who's who's yep, you know, managed difficult situations badly. Hurt people when, hurt people. But when given an opportunity is willing to take some responsibility for that. And in in the end a lot of responsibility for that. So so this has given rise to things like the restorative and transformative justice movements that are trying to get us to rethink what we mean by justice. We have this very perverted, um, you know, really degraded notion of justice in American yeah. society that equates justice with revenge, yes. that, that measures accountability in years of incarceration or intensity of violence that we subject people to. And if we begin to think about justice as something that is more restorative, that's about restoring balance, creating stability, repairing damage, creating a better world, then that can help guide us to make decisions about how to address harms in ways that produce more solidarity, more caring, more building people up rather than tearing people down and I think that's this is kind of a perfect we love to have tangibles that our audience can take away and that people can practice over the next few weeks or years or, or whatever it is and so how does if for the average listener what is something that they can do to start that practice to start creating that community to start active you know creating a world where we are seeing systems shift and change for the betterment of the people living in it. Well, I'll re uh, you know recommend uh, a couple of books real quickly. One is called Beyond Survival and the other is We Do This Till We Free Us. And these are books that are collections of work that's being done in communities to try to figure out how we can collectively produce safer, healthier communities for ourselves without bringing in policing and these systems of formal social control. So what, what can we do to create support networks for ourselves, our friends, our families? How can we act together as neighbors to try to resolve problems amongst ourselves from a position of mutual respect and mutual understanding designed to move us forward, not just to X people out. And so the, the, these books have ideas about how to better manage, you know, uh, intimate partner violence, uh, violence among young people, 
mental health crises, you know, disputes with neighbors. It's all very practical, and I think we, we all need help overcoming this idea that anytime we have a problem, we just call 911 and somehow miraculously that's going to make it better. When it turns out when we unleash that force, it often produces a lot of harm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, man. So I think one of the things that I'm curious about is is there i'm struggling because i'm I'm wondering like what is the redeeming quality of police like if that makes sense like what like uh in a perfect world like we wouldn't need it right you this utopian landscape but in a in a in a in a quote broken world if you will uh like what what is the redemptive quality of having a police force or is there any? Or uh, and I, I think that's just a question I'm grappling with. What are What are your thoughts I don't think there? there? I don't think there's anything redemptive about it. I think that you know it is the force that we have. You know, we've been told that's the only thing we can have in many cases. So people have come to rely upon it for for everything in many cases, especially in the most under-resourced neighborhoods. And so what folks are talking about is not, you know, flipping some magical switch and then there are no police and we figure it out. What people are saying is, look, we we have this massive system of policing. We, We can't just get rid of it overnight. What we can do is begin to think critically about what things we can reduce their role in. Mm. Do we really need them to wage a war on drugs? Do we really need them to police the halls of schools? Do we really need them to manage our mental health problems and to manage mass homelessness? It's just very obvious that we don't need them to do those things. And that (laughs) we need to reduce that scope of policing and replace it with a logic of care and compassion, you know, to actually provide people with services and resources so that we can reduce those problems. And then we see what's left and we work on that. And where that process ends, I don't think we have some, you know, predetermined conclusion about that. Yeah. Yeah. And we see all of those things. Well, I think one of the reasons I really particularly enjoy having you is like we see all of these things in in this 12 episode arc like we see homelessness we see gang violence we see this corrupt police force we see corrupt politicians grappling with how to manage that we we see all of the we see protesting we see how that's managed we see so like cora is like if you say it's not political you're just you're just wrong in every single way (laughs) and i just I think one of the things like, we probably don't have time to dive in fully into this, but one of the things you talk about in your book is how, when it comes to um, how police maintain record of who is affiliated with gang members and things like that, I, the 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 law that Tarlock proposed was doing exactly that. Anyone affiliated with an equalist, like, is going to be, and all of their friends and like everything, we're going to write them all down and maintain record, and it just really reminded me of that. And like, there's just this is touching on so many really 
poignant topics that need to be hashed out in our world. And so I'm just, I'm grateful for Cora for giving us this opportunity to have the lesson, right? <laughs> yeah, oh. abs- absolutely. I mean, this, th- it's, it's similar to gang databases, but it's really much more like political policing. And there's a great book called Enemies about the history of the FBI and just the way in which they used intelligence gathering and databases and and keeping files on people to to shape the politics of the country. And there's this great new documentary, MLK FBI, that really delves into the way the FBI, you know, actively harassed and undermined MLK's work. Oh man, so much, and, and not enough time for all of it because this this. But this has been a absolutely. Oh, there's so many little details that I wish we could. Great conversation. Discuss. Is there anything else in this show, Alex, that you see that you feel like we we've got to touch on before we jump into kind of our back half of show and uh, and kind of wrap things up? But is there a moment in this episode that you're like, we haven't touched on this yet? Let's definitely talk about it. I th- I think we. I, oh yes, right. Uh, it was so funny when when uh, Cora and Tenzin go to the police headquarters to try to free their friends. They are confronted by you know the blue wall, and they they end up calling the chief a knucklehead, yeah, uh, which is a very polite term uh, given what was really going on there, right? But that what we see right is that. You know, this idea that they're knuckleheads, I think that's really evoking this feeling that we have that that the police are so out of our control, so capable to produce injustices with no consequences. And I think that's very relevant to the moment we're in right now. Yeah, I I think I I was very impressed with because. Cora is the one who initiates that. Cora's like, Saikon, you, and just like goes on a little rant. And then Tenzin's like, yeah, you are the worst. And I'm like, go Cora <laughs> for calling a spade a spade, right? And then like for, for Tenzin to follow Cora's lead there and to be like, you know, you're right. This isn't just an impetuous girl. This is someone who sees what justice is supposed to look like and, and can recognize it and calls a spade a spade and says, Saikon, you are the worst, <laughs> right? Um, I just I thought that was a, a a moment of sometimes being uh, political and being like I'll handle this later and going like in having that like it's just sometimes you need to call a spade a spade. Well, it's 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 interesting for me because it feels like this moment of of continuing to double down right even after mistakes are made or even after if the, if you know that what you maybe have done isn't the best thing or really adhering to justice but it's this double down because of a culture that is set around like protecting our own and um and not if we we can't admit that we were wrong in this for fear of backlash or for fear of of you know some form of accountability and so you see them double down and and just kind of shut down and say nope we're not admitting a mistake we're not admitting that we did anything wrong and we're going to keep pushing forward and how does that parallel it from this show to our current day policing well, there, you know, there was a lot of ethical clarity in that moment, right? And so what, what, what we have today, right, is the movement for black lives saying, look, we're done with police reform. 
We're done with thinking that if we just, you know, throw a couple of cops in prison, that'll fix the problem, to, to making a much deeper demand that, that we rethink the, the basic legitimacy of policing as a tool to solve every social problem under the sun. Mm-hmm. That, that we tried asking for reform, we tried asking for them to stop killing people, none of it has produced meaningful results, and, and now we have to go deeper. Amen. <laughs> like, yep. Like, uh, wow. All right, Ben, anything you want to add before we jump in and, and take a break and then get into the back half of our episode or back end of our episode? I well, think I, the only thing I, I'm going to... Go ahead, go ahead. No, I just want to say I really appreciate your provoking me to kind of engage with this story. Oh, We've loved having you. Yeah, you've been. This has been fantastic, and we are so so excited that you were here with us today. This is a much better conversation than than Ben or I could have come close to to this, having. This is correct. Um, and so again, if you haven't put it on your Goodreads list or put it on your your reading list, uh, end of policing. Please please go pick it up. Audiobook. Do all of the stuff. Um, definitely worth checking out. And we'll say that again at the end of the episode. But please go mark that on your reading list. Um, we will take a quick break and then we will be back with our devotion and our gratitude for the episode. We'll be right back. Awesome. We have had a really just pleasant time having you professor vitali because we again we just we couldn't have done it without you this is so informative uh i've really appreciated grappling with your book and grappling with the questions that you've asked us and the lessons that you've taught us and helped us kind of see in a different way so thank you so much for being with us and helping our listeners can you help us help them find you like if you want them to find you like if you (laughs) uh, uh, like if you want to share your twitter handle or uh, books that you want them to check out or like if you want them to find you how would you ask them to do so well the the easiest way is on twitter at a vitale a-v-i-t-a-l-e but i'm also on instagram and facebook and the policing and social justice project is on Twitter at policing J, and the best way to get the book is through uh, versobooks.com. Awesome. Again, thank you. We're grateful, and uh, we hope that you continue to uh, enjoy the Legend of Korra and maybe even Avatar: The Last Airbender and all of the new content that's coming out. I hope that you enjoy grappling with the universe. Thanks, guys. Once again, that was Alex S. Vitale, author of End of Policing. Go check that out, and big thanks to Alex for being on the show. Let's jump on in to our devotion, our, our tangible takeaway to deal with policing. <laughs> <laughs> Difficult to do, <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that's that's why we do this, right? That's why we – it's one of the reasons I love our devotion because we do talk about a lot of big ideas, and but now we talk about how we – make the world a better place or how we hope to make the world a better place. Yeah. And so I, we chatted during the break, Ben, about a a big goal maybe that requires that we both kind of wanted to focus on. Yeah. And so, but we're doing it through the, the element of air. It's air this week. Yeah. So talk about it. Yeah. So one of the things 
that we kind of talked about was like how do we what what is the what is the air when it comes to policing and what is it like and we were like <laughs> we came around oh it feels like a storm and then we're like well, it's it's more it's more powerful than a st- just a storm right it's like this is like a tornado that is hitting because what happens is when it goes wrong we end up huddled in the hallway with our head tucked between our legs right with we are literally trying to to just like, survive it's out of our hand and yep. we're trying to survive and feels unstoppable it, it exact it's this force that feels unstoppable and, and and you had talked about how anytime we ask for takeaways of, from anyone really it's like it's a big deal i don't know it's a it's a large like we should we should probably stop that but like what are the small how do we break that down right um so we were thinking what is the step and i think we have to th- start at like Let's start at the grassroots level. What is the thing that we can do in our community that helps us grapple and take a step? Because small steps to change are better than no steps to change, That's right? right. Um, what are some community-level things that we can be doing that affect this this giant tornado of, of, of a beast, right? And so I teach uh, a class. I teach mental health first aid. And one of the things we talk about, and that's that's a national international program, but one of the things we talk about is in crisis situations, the response is you should call 911. And the problem with that is that oftentimes, as Professor Vitali said, is that those people are ill-equipped to actually deal with the, pro- the things at hand, which are often mental health challenges. And so... One of the things that Mental Health First Aid has started saying alongside that is is to offer, one, are there community hotlines that you could be calling instead for crisis situations? Is there a specific mental health crisis hotline that you can call? And so I, I think for, for us, one of the things we wanted to do was we wanted to know that about our communities, and we wanted to bring out a call to courage for all of our listeners to find this out for their communities as well. What are the numbers that you can call that are not the police who may be better equipped to handle crisis situations when it comes to mental health challenges, when it comes to X, Y, or Z. And I think that's the challenge is, right, what are the community resources that you can lean on that help you start to break away from relying on the police to solve problems that they aren't equipped to do? Um, what do you have to add there? What did I, what did I miss? How did I, did I miss anything? No, I think I think it's just that I think it's not only it's we have to find the resources, see if they're there, see if we can work with them. I, volunteer for them. I know that there's several crisis hotlines or yep. um, organizations just in our area where we are and that volunteering is a possibility at those places. And so how do we engage in those places and share those resources with others? Because that's the other big step is, is allowing people uh, the opportunity to learn that there are other options of people who may be more equipped to to handle a situation, but if we don't know that that resource exists, we're we might fall back on one that could end up being more harmful. Yeah, so we're learning how to stop a tornado. Um, <laughs> That's the plan, and we're gonna do our best, but. Um, this is uh, small steps to change, right? So, like, spread information, help people learn more, uh, maybe read more. Um, maybe some of these books that have been dropped by Professor Vitali as well. So, there's just there's a lot, and I think that's the goal for us is to 
um, begin to share resources and call on on people to share resources from their communities as well. And that's, I think, Ben and I are both readers, right? We we read a lot of, of books surrounding on issues in which are helpful, but there's also not a replacement for acting on this information. Reading is fantastic. Learning is fantastic. You also have to act with the things that you are learning and the things that you are reading, and you have to engage in your community if you're actually going to make a difference. And so I think that that's, that's our goal this week and forever, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> but, but this week specifically, our intentionality is around that. Yeah. And setting gratitude because I we need it. I want I want some joy in my <laughs> yeah, life. And gratitude to... helps me get there. <laughs> so let's let's talk about some gratitude. Ben, who is a character that you are grateful for this episode? One of the things we, we talked about recently um, was this season feels really heavy. And it's because this season it is. because this season is really heavy. And uh, like, you know, in our first couple seasons of Avatar, we, we, we a lot of it was there was a lot of humor. There's a lot of um, important conversations, but but these conversations are just there's so much important things to cover that, <laughs> that a lot of it has just felt heavy. And one of the things I'm really grateful for is is for Iki in this episode because Iki is a shining beacon of humor. And I, she definitely made me laugh out loud. And so one of the <laughs> just childlike wonder. It was just, it's beautiful because like she's just super cute. So like she goes on asking all these questions, like just fires these questions one right after another. And then what I think is probably really funny is Bolin is like, like I think he's a teen saying like, oh, I'm gonna hang out with, I'm gonna like seem cool to the kid, and I'm gonna ask a bunch of questions, and they're not gonna be able to keep up, and then. Iki just like surprises yes, yes, him. Yes, no, yes, and yes, <laughs> and, and like and names all the numbers of trees on the on the like island, and you see Bolin's face, and he's just like, oh my god, I did not expect her to be actually able to answer these questions, and I just this childlike wonder and joy, and her precociousness, and just her ability to, I just I love Iki in this moment, and it just is uplifting, and I'm I'm grateful for her. Well, both. Iki and Janora throughout the series and Milo, but specifically Iki and Janora and their relationships and the way they engage later on in the seasons. Yeah. Uh, so much joy comes from their experiences throughout this, this Absolutely. show. So yeah, big, big shouts to them. I'm going to give mine to Asami and it's going to be, I want to lift her up because this, the bending versus non-bending thing is something that affects her. But it also doesn't because she has a level of privilege to avoid a lot of the issues that are being raised. She did not need to be at that protest. She did not need to be there um, because it didn't affect her. Her power wasn't out, but she put herself in that situation regardless of her privilege. Um, and that's something that I respect a lot. And I also think she highlights the fact that there are multiple layers of diversity, multiple dimensions of diversity, mm. and that there are some places that privilege still exists and that you still have privilege in regardless, but there's also places where you might not. And so um, I think that she kind of lifts that up as well, is that she has certain privileges that allow her to escape certain situations, um, but she's still there. She's still there to help out. And then, you know, Iki and Asami's relationship is great, too, because Iki just, like, goes after Korra. Like, yeah, <laughs> there's a whole lot there. Uh, okay, 
um, I want to thank thank Iki for lifting, giving me this moment of humor, and thank you for doing this podcast with me so we could have this conversation with Professor Vitali, and I'm, I'm glad that we're we're able to have that conversation because it's important. Absolutely. Find us on all of them interwebs, BNB underscore pod. That'll be on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, all of the places. We're on Facebook as well. And uh, if you have something you want to add to this conversation, a two-minute voice memo or anything that you want to add or, or let us know, email us at thearchivee at gmail.com. And uh, we would love to hear from you and, and maybe even put your voicemail on the show. How about that? That's right. And you can also support us on Patreon. We would love your support. We're just grateful for you. We we just got a new patron, so we're really glad. Yeah, help us we, pick lenses. Yeah. Help us uh, do all of the stuff. That's right. And you also there's bonus stuff. We just had our one of our first live episodes with, with our patrons, and it was great. And so we want you all to join in on that. So. Jump on in, patreon.com slash bnb underscore pod. Thank you all so much. I am Sunshine Mayfield. Ben Pruitt here. And this has been Bending Not Breaking. Thank you to Max, and thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.